G'day guys, Tom Craig here. Welcome to my podcast, The Help Side. Now the help side is a term in hockey that refers to the other side of the pitch, away from where the ball is and the action happens. And in the same way, the aim of this podcast is to give you, the listener, an insight into the other side of elite hockey players, to hear about their highs, their lows, and what makes them tick. We'll also hear about the journey they went through, from having fun in the backyard to playing out their dreams on the world stage. So whether you're a player, a coach, an umpire, a parent, a fan, or just a fan of sport in general, I'm hoping this podcast gives you a window into the world of elite athletes, and even better, encourages you to get more involved in our great sport. You can hear the chat we had last week and others you may have missed by searching The Help Side on any major podcast platform. And if you want, you can like and subscribe our page to make sure that you're up to date with the most recent episodes. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get to this week's guest. What the spin plays across the face of goal and Tammy Wojcicki and Australia make it 2-0. And what a finish that is from Aaron Zalewski. It's gone to Govers, Govers slots at Dawson into Zalewski, into the back of the net. And that is a really well-worked penalty corner routine. Aaron Zalewski, or Moose, as he's more commonly known, is the co-captain of the Australian men's hockey team and a proud West Australian. Hailing from the famous Margaret River region, Moose is one of the premier players in world hockey, and in 2019 he was nominated for the FIH World Player of the Year Award, an impressive accolade to add to his gold medals at the World Cup and the Commonwealth Games. He's the general of the national team, an imposing defensive midfielder who calls the shots for the Kookaburras in both attack and defence. In this interview, we talk about leadership, the professionalism required to make it to the top in elite sport, and the insatiable quest for self-improvement that has made Aaron the world-class player he is today. As you'll hear, there are two sides to Aaron, the determined, ultra-competitive elite athlete and the chilled, laid-back surfer dude. And this juxtaposition makes him a fascinating guy to talk to. I hope you enjoy the help side of Aaron Moose Zalewski. Moose, apparently, apparently you go by Aaron. Occasionally, my, only when my mum's telling me off. I'm pretty, pretty sure these days, exclusively called Moose uh, in the hockey circles, and um, that's why I like it. I'm pretty comfortable with the name now. So I have to say, absolutely. When I was when I was telling um, my production team that I was going to interview you today, I didn't know how to. Um, I just kept wanting to say I'm interviewing Moose. And I was so averse to saying Aaron that I just ended up calling you Zalewski the entire time um, because it just feels weird to call you Aaron, to be honest. I have to say, if a moose did play field hockey, we know a couple probably play ice hockey, but if a moose did play field hockey, you'd be a pretty good representation of one. But where does the nickname come from, first off? Uh, it was an evolution of several nicknames. I remember touring uh, South Africa in 2008. It was a Schoolboys Australia trip, and one of the coaches on there um, just started calling me Zeus, obviously from Zalewski, shortened to Zeus. Um, and then, you know, after a few more hockey trips, it evolved to the Spruce Moose, just because that rhymed with Zeus, and then um, finally got shortened to Moose, and I, that one's the one that stuck, and that's stuck ever since. I remember a story, actually. I think you won the, the Perth, um, I don't know, best and fairest for the Perth hockey comp. <laughs> and when you won it, like, I don't know the story. You you want to share? Um, yeah, so 2013, I won um, the 
Olympians medal, which is the best player in the Perth League. And when I won and, you know, they read out my name, uh, there was a table behind me full of Fremantle, uh, Fremantle hockey team and they were yelling out, Moose, Moose. Um, but a few people thought they were booing me. Um, so they proceeded to go and uh, abuse the Fremantle Hockey Club for, you know, yelling out my nickname. So that was pretty funny. That is classic. I remember, well, often like if you score a goal, 25 times that is, if you score a goal, sometimes you can hear the chorus of Moose echoing around whichever stadium or local ground we're having to be playing at. I'm going to move on. On the FIH website, mate, you describe yourself as uh, addictive. Now, this is an interesting one because I'm not sure whether you mean you're addictive as in people just want more of you or you have an addictive personality. <laughs> Do you want to shed some light on that? Oh, I don't know if people want more of me. They probably <laughs> um, I'm a I'm a little bit addictive in how I go about things. So if I'm into something or I'm, you know, trying to do something, I'm, I'm going all in. Um, and I think that's how I've played my hockey, you know, through stages, but also um, what I do around other assets of my life. And at the moment it's surfing or it's golf or it's going camping. I need all the gear. I want to go every weekend. Um, it's one of those things where I just can't get enough of, um, you know, a fad or something that I'm into. I'm just... Fully addicted by it. Yeah, you have been um, described as a fad guy by numerous teammates. Just off the top of my head, I was brainstorming a few fads that you've been into. Let me know if there are any more since I last saw you that you've taken up. But you mentioned golf, surfing, um, coffee is one, definitely. I I feel like that's probably more than a fad, but um, you definitely got really into it. Like now you enjoy it, but like you got like deep, deep into it the making, the grind, the measuring, the weighing, like hardcore into that. Um, your steak as well. I remember that was that was a brief phase. That was probably only like a week or so. You were just obsessed with making the perfect steak. Is that still um, on? No, um, I'm into that. I watch, you know, barbecue <laughs> pitmasters on Foxtel and, and they give me the lowdown. And, uh, I love getting that perfect reverse sear on, on my ribeye. So I'm still into the steaks and the grilling. So that's something that I, I love to do on the weekends or if I've got enough time to set the barb out for a couple of hours. Is that a trade secret? Can you tell us how to make the perfect steak? Look, I'm, t- I'm into the reverse here. So that's the method in which you cook it really slow and on a low heat and then you sear it at the end instead of searing it at the start and then cooking it low and slow. So um, that's just something I've been into lately and I think it gets the, the best texture of the meat and, and can cook it perfectly. Yeah, you like doing things a little differently. That's That's not... Um, two separate from your AeroPress technique, which I believe is the inverted method as a method of brewing coffee on tour. Is that right? Yeah, I think most people use the inverted method in, <laughs> in our team, but it's not the suggested method, which is the, the normal way. So flip, flip things upside down and usually you get a better result, I reckon. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Uh, I've got a few more here. Um, you had a phase of being really into your maths um, you even employed one of our teammates, Tim Brand, as a as a personal tutor. Any reason for that one? That is a complete lie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is uh, on the FIH website, man. I'm I'm not I'm not making this up. No, I made that uh, one. Yeah, I definitely leave my uni to the last minute, and I try and employ the experts to help me get through any tough situations. So Tim Brand, who's a you know he's a mathematician, he's a, he's an expert at math. So I pulled him in and try and help me with my assignment. And I did the same with uh, Yoey, who's a finance guru. 
uh, put him in to try and help me with one of my finance assignments. So, you know, I've got these experts around me. I thought, why, am I, why not use their expertise and help me get through my uni degree? Absolutely. That's the beauty of team sport. Just going to cap it off here with yoga. You definitely were into yoga for a time. People might not know this, but you're one of the world's most flexible men. Um, you've often actually attributed that to why you're not beating me in a 100-meter foot race, but um, we'll move on from there. And, and perhaps the most iconic fad, which was um, there was a bit of fanfare around this one, your minimalism. That was a massive, massive stage for you where you just threw out all your clothes. Is that right? Yes, I went through a stage where I figured I was spending way too much money on clothing and fashion. I thought, you know what? I'm going to buy one piece of clothing for a whole year and see how it goes. Um, I actually ended up buying one thing that year. It was from the secondhand store. Ended up losing it. So that was a true sign that it wasn't meant to be and it was my year of going minimalist. Um, So that was an interesting phase. I actually really enjoyed it. And to say that I'm a minimalist now wouldn't be right, but to say that some of them aspects that I learned through that phase have carried on through life is, is definitely true now. I see myself being much more resourceful what I have and not needing to buy new things all the time. And that was an interesting part of my life. Yeah, that was a good one. That provided a lot of um a lot of joy around the change room. I remember at the time and then when you announced that you were no longer a minimalist, you became a, a maximus, <laughs> according to teammate Jacob Wetton. But as you say, that's perhaps not the most fair <laughs> analogy. One fad that you've stuck with, though, is, is hockey. So we're going to talk about that a fair bit. Um, we're going to launch with talking about the Olympic postponement. Um, for those of you who didn't listen to the first couple of episodes, on the 23rd of March, we had a meeting before training where we were informed that the Olympics was going to be postponed until next year. 2021 that is and you had a few things to say in that meeting most but i'm just interested in in your thoughts and um yeah how do you feel about that now uh, obviously at the time it was pretty challenging we the probably the most difficult part was two to three weeks before we found out the news that olympics was going to be cancelled we were kind of training um with a little bit of a cloud over our heads in not knowing what was happening. A lot of our counterparts in Europe were in kind of complete lockdown situations. Um, The IOC was still saying the Olympics were going ahead. So we had that carrot there in terms of what the the landscape looked like, but there was so much uncertainty around the situation and the coronavirus pandemic was seemingly like spiralling into a situation that was going to be uncontrollable and inevitable that the Olympics wasn't going to go on. So we kind of were waiting, waiting what's happening. Um, and then it got to the stage where a lot of businesses and things were starting to shut down in Perth. Uh, casual and social sports were getting shut down. Community sports were getting shut down. And we kind of went into training. And, and I remember going to training on Monday. And I had a feeling the whole weekend I was feeling kind of anxious. And I'm not really an anxious person at all. So that was kind of unnerving a little bit for me. And, and we went in and we had a really open discussion um, with the coaches and with all the players about how we felt and I think it was a, a group consensus that we didn't want to continue training and, and that was on the back of the coaches also telling us the Olympics had been postponed at this stage for we didn't know how long. So that was an interesting meeting and, and to me originally I was really upset um, and frustrated but I also was very understanding and I felt like that it was something that had been brewing for two or three weeks. So I was 
happy that we knew um, our fate in a sense. Um, and as soon as we knew that, then my mind kind of shifted and we kind of had to start thinking about, all right, what are we going to do now? A lot of players started to think, all right, we've got to go home. We're trying to get back to our home and our family and the people we care about before the borders shut. So uh, things changed pretty quickly in, in you know a couple of days there. And probably since that day, I've mostly been... I'm obviously down in Margaret River now, but mostly been trying to come up with a bit of a routine um, around what I do with my days. We, we can't train anymore, but um, it's been a little bit about distraction and getting away from hockey and, and switching off a little bit at the moment because uh, the Olympics is, is quite a way away now. And, you know, we hope still it goes ahead in July 2021. Yeah. Uh, and obviously your role as co-captain within the group, does that change the way you approach COVID or what is your role during, during this time where the group's so, so detached from each other? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Um, I'm not entirely sure how or what my role is during this period. And it's a little bit of uncertainty. Um, all I can do is kind of spread that message and the, of health and safety and, making sure that everyone's doing the right thing in, in my community with my family and, and with my friends and make sure we're ticking all the boxes in terms of um, acting socially responsible with the, with the pandemic. Uh, in terms of training and things like that, that's, we're in a kind of uh, a little bit of a rest period. So there's not too much going on in terms of um, what we need to do physically. And most of my role, I think, now is, is evolved around making sure that everyone's all right. I've been flicking out a few texts, a few phone calls, which probably is not really my style, but um, getting to everyone and saying, g'day, how you going, what have you been up to, which has been uh, been really interesting, actually, because it's not something that I generally would do on a break period. If we had three or four weeks off, I probably wouldn't contact too many of the guys, let everyone do their own thing. Um, but I feel like this break of three or four months is, is longer and, and so unusual. We, we haven't really seen that before. So to, to keep connected through this time, I think, is, is super important, especially for our group, who is so close, train every single day together, generally live in each other's pockets to be so distant for so long. is pretty unusual. Yeah, it's crazy times, really. And you've chosen to self-isolate. You're back with family down in Margaret River. How's that? Yeah, I'm loving it. Absolutely loving it down here. Um, I came down here because uh, it's a place where I feel safe. I grew up down in Margaret River. I'm really lucky my fiance Tegan has come down to Margaret River with me and she's had to make a lot of sacrifices and move her work, which is fully online now, um, down to Margaret River. But I think it's been really rewarding spending more time with my mum and my dad and reconnecting with the area and the, the place where I grew up. So that's been a, a really great experience. and. I'm lucky enough to live in a, well, my parents are lucky enough and I was lucky enough to grow up in in an amazing place with amazing landscape and um, it's been fun. I've been going down to the beach with my old man every morning and and having a swim and um, there's a rock out there about 500 metres past the jetty and we swim out there, pick up the rock, see how far we can run it underwater and and then swim back. So um, the mornings have been fun and, and then, you know, helping them around the garden and making sure that, um, everything's, you know, A-OK. We've been, we made a fire pier, helping Dad with the limestone wall and a little bit of gardening chores, so Mum's happy, which has been great. It sounds like it's pretty good. We're going to stay down in Margaret River. Um, back to the start of your career, I guess. You're a kid playing hockey in Margaret River. Was it a family affair like most people get into hockey or how would you get into it? And why would you, you stick with it? Why do you play? 
I got into it, certainly it was a family affair. Dad played hockey. It was his main passion. Um, and the biggest thing about the hockey club down in Margaret certainly was about the community. It was a place where we went to socialise. It was a place where we went to hang out with friends and talk about things um, that we probably wouldn't talk about at home. Or um, Yeah, it was a great environment for for everyone that was a part of the club at that time. It was, um, it was bustling, if, I'd, if, I, if that was the right word. But... I love playing every sport when I was a kid and my mum and dad were um, so open to me trying new things. I remember I was into bodyboarding, I did BMX, I did karate, tennis, cricket, literally I had a crack at everything and dad didn't love it all the time because um, I wasn't focused on hockey and I could tell that when I went to training and I was a bit tired or, you know, I'd, I'd been thinking about footy training that he was, he was a bit off me. So that was an interesting time. But I think the important thing about hockey and why I kept playing and, and what drew me to that sport was certainly around the social aspect. We used to jump in um, old man's Mr. Patrol back then. It was seven or eight seater and we'd all jump in and drive up to Boston and spend the whole day at the hockey, hockey club and I'd just hit balls against the wall or I'd play in the A2s, the A1s, the under-16s. I'd play three games of hockey in a day and I absolutely loved it and that relationship's definitely changed over time. I would say I love hockey but I think my relationship with hockey is much different now to what it is or what it was back then. And I look at some of the people I play hockey with now and they still love and are really passionate about hockey in a way that, that I'm not, but I can completely understand how, um, how they're feeling and, and it, it makes me smile to see how much they get out of um, the game of hockey, which is something that I think sport and especially in communities is awesome. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. Um, you, People don't know this probably, but you are a self-professed king of the pun. Uh, you often come to training. We have three or four puns. And there was one that I picked up on there. Not sure if intended, but you said that it was, it was bustling, the hockey community. And people also probably don't know this, but your old man, Wally, actually does own a bus that he uses to help drive community engagement with the sport. He's a real community man, isn't he? Yeah, well, that's it. We used to pile in the Nissan Patrol and then the Land Cruiser and then it got to the stage where everyone wanted to be in the car. So we thought, <laughs> hell, we've got to get a bus to take everyone up to hockey. <laughs> and I think it was just out of the kindness of his heart how much he loved the club and how much um, he'd invested in it to buy a bus on behalf of the club and, and use it as... Uh, still wanted to get that social aspect out of the club and we know community sport, and especially in the regions, is probably declining and, and we're not getting the amount of participation that we really need or that we want. Um, so that was a way to keep people invested in the club and to get everyone to drive up to Boston or drive up to Bunbury on a weekend is difficult. But if you jump in the bus, you can have a beer on the way back. Um, it's much more of a social thing having that bus. Um, the funny story about that was me and my old man actually had to fly over to Sydney, pick up the bus and then drive it across another ball. And we ended up getting stuck in Streaky Bay, which is a small town in uh, South, South Australia, Australia. For, yeah, for five days while the bus got fixed and me and my old man were basically twiddling our thumbs for five days. But um, I'll never forget that trip and um, it was, it's great to get, it was great to get home finally. Yeah, that's sick. That's um, country hockey really sounds like a very, very much a community affair and um, sounds like something that you can really invest a lot of time into and, and people obviously love uh, speaking of, of family, you mentioned that your fiance Tegan has come down to Marks to 
you know, support you because that's, that's where you want to be. And obviously she loves it down there as well. But it has to be said, your family's typically out in full force regardless of where in the world we're playing. You're very well supported in that regard. Yeah, I've been really lucky that mum and dad have um, been retired for a few years now and they've had plenty of time on the hands to come and travel the world and, and watch me play. And it's so, um, it's so lovely to see them in the stands and Tegan as well. She's made it to most of the major tournaments, Commonwealth Games, World Cups, Olympics. I think um, she's been to all of them, which is, is so great to have support. And uh, the environment and the bubble you live in on tour is pretty unique. So to have them on tour and just grounding you a little bit and, and giving you a, a little bit of an out sometimes is certainly needed. Um, and obviously both my parents are, for, are European. So mum was born in Ireland and dad was born in Poland. So we do have a lot of family over in Europe. So whenever we travel uh, over there, there'll be people pop over from Ireland or um, wherever and come watch the games. And my sister's in Berlin, are living in Berlin now. So she she came down to the games in Germany and Holland and um, it's great to see her and her boyfriend after, you know, we don't get to see them that often in Australia. Definitely seems like the Zalewskis always gravitate back to Europe. You played a season, one season there as well? Yeah, played 2016-17 season in Holland for Pinnaker with Matt Goads, one of the, one of our good mates and, and another ex-Kookaburra. I muted you and that was a good experience? Yeah, loved it over there. Um, I learned a lot about my hockey. I was kind of in that uh, phase where I really needed to get out of the national program. I'd been playing with the Australian team for the best part of five or six years at this stage, or at least training with them. Um, so for me, just to get away, completely kind of uh, de-stress and, and just clear my mind of, um, you know, where I was at at that stage and kind of reevaluate what I wanted in my career as a hockey person, as a hockey player, and just enjoy a little bit of my life and the life experiences with um, my partner was over there with me as well. And I was um, living with another couple, Matt and Jill. Um, so that was a great time. And, and it really re-motivated me to come back into the national program after that and, um, you know, continue to play for another, you know, another, at least another Olympic cycle. Yeah, that sounds like it was a pretty interesting time for you. We're going to get to that in a second. But uh, I guess you're kind of unique in, well, not unique, but we don't have too many Western Australians uh, in the squad. Often it's a story about moving from your home and the East Coast, um, whereas for you it was a little different. You boarded at uh, the Aquana School in Perth. So you were pretty well naturalised to the Perth environment before you made the squad. Do you want to just talk about your, I guess, your schooling and going to boarding school and how that transition uh, went for you to get into the squad in 2011? Yeah, so I did all my primary school and my first year of high school in Margaret River. And I remember thinking at the time that I probably needed to get to Perth and put myself out of my comfort zone a little bit and expose myself to, to you know, different things. And that's when I decided mum and dad were lucky enough to be able to send me to boarding school. And I went to Aquinas, which was a great experience. And um, I probably think that was one of the most defining things I did in my life and <laughs> loved every minute of it. You're basically hanging out with all your mates 24-7 and you don't have any parents around. So I don't, I don't know why uh, you wouldn't do that. But, yeah, so I was already in that Perth environment since I was about 13 and um, I'd been lucky enough to go down to some AS games and some trainings and certainly when you live in Perth, you get that opportunity. And I, I was really lucky enough that... Um, 
when Rick was in charge that he gave me a few opportunities to, to do that. And then the transition to the Australian team was a little bit, it was a little bit unique. I played in 2011 and then played my first game, just played one game at the end of 2011. And then 2012 was the Olympic year. So I didn't actually get selected in the Olympic squad. I was selected in the Olympic development squad. But we had an awesome training group. We, we trained just as hard as the Olympic squad did uh, in terms of the hours and the commitment that we had. Uh, but it was a different group where we trained individually, we trained by ourselves. And then on the Saturday mornings, we would play games against the Olympic squad. Uh, so that was a, I had a really enjoyable year that year. And, and that probably set me on the path um, towards the Kookaburra as, as I eventually got selected post uh, London 2012 in, into this, the Kookaburra's national squad in 2013. But I think the best thing about being, being from WA or, or living in Perth and being part of the national program was I still had all my friends from school, all my friends um, that I'd made uh, through, through hockey and through life in Perth. And, and they certainly um, kept me really grounded through the whole experience. And there's some, some guys I use now a lot just to catch up, see how they go and have a coffee with them or have a beer with them. And I can completely get away from, you know, hockey and, you know, hockey, the Kookaburra's bubble, which, you know, I'm really lucky to, to have that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, with that in mind, though, when, when you were coming into the, the Kookaburras, you were, well, 20 years old, I think, when you debuted. Um, obviously, for a lot of people who don't have elite sport as an outlet, around, you know, 19, 20, 21, there's a fair bit of, I guess, a party scene and people are in uni and they're having a lot of fun. Could that be difficult to, to challenge? Having all your mates around who, who um, potentially were, you know, in that lifestyle versus balancing your time as, as also an elite athlete? Yeah, I remember when I started, I was actually, I was working a job. So I was pretty much working 25 to 30 hours a week uh, and still training. So I wasn't necessarily caught up um, partying really hard because I was already doing so much that I was really tired. But I guess when, when I wasn't training, I wasn't playing hockey, I certainly did hang out with my mates and probably did some things that, um, you know, weren't, elite athlete status I would say um and I don't know if you were thinking about asking this later but I got down the track where basically things were going really well I was I was training I was part of the Kookaburras things were awesome um I cracked it into the team I was playing uh I played for the first six months of 2013 uh but I still hadn't quite committed to the elite lifestyle I was still hanging out with my schoolmates on the weekend and partying and, and drinking because, like I said, I was 20, 21 and I, I still just wanted to have a good time and <laughs> I was still trying to find my feet and figure out who I was as a person. And then uh, we were on a tour 2013. So I played the first half of the year and we were in Europe on a trip and I remember there was 20 people and there was only 18 who could play in the tournament. So two of us weren't going to get selected. Um, I didn't really, hadn't really thought about it up to this stage. And just before the tournament started, Rick invited me to his office uh, and he told me, Aaron, look, you're not going to be needed for the tournament. We're going to send you back to Australia. And that was a um, you know, brick wall moment for me in terms of I went back to Australia thinking that I never wanted that, to have that feeling again. I didn't want to be left out ever again. And it was like a burning sensation inside of my gut. And, you know, that lasted for... You're probably 
a good two or three months, but it really put me on the right track of, all right, I want to be here. I want to do this. Um, and I had to make some serious sacrifices around, you know, partying and socialising and, and take care of my diet, my strength, my recovery. And it really put me on the path to becoming an elite athlete. And, you know, I thank Rick for that, what he did for me in that time, even though, you know, I might not, if I, if that didn't happen, maybe things would be different. I'm not sure. But um, that was certainly a defining moment, defining moment for me in my career as I look back on it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, with hockey, sometimes, obviously yourself, you've uh, dominated age group hockey uh, all the way through and we're probably always going to play for Australia. But when it actually happens, it can, it can happen pretty quick. And it's a, it's a pretty difficult transition to go from 18-year-old enjoying hanging out with your mates and partying and stuff. And then all of a sudden you're in an environment. And I imagine those first couple of years, it might not really seem real. So that's, a, that's an interesting and, and a good, good reflection there. So 2013, probably the, the second half, uh, you, you started playing some really good hockey and, and you were rewarded with the, your first World Cup, 2014, where you went on to win um, a gold medal. Do you want to talk about that experience? Yeah, so obviously, like I said, I'll just quickly run through. 2013, like you said, the start of the year, everything was great. I'd just been selected um, and then hit home that I wasn't going to get picked anymore. So I made some significant changes in my uh, life and in my hockey life, how I went about things, um, really, really ramped up um, my focus, uh, took care of my diet, took care of my weight, really got my body into a position where, you know, it was was strong. I was really fit. Um, I started to play really well. And then at the start of 2014, just before the first trip went to Aslan Shah to Malaysia, I got injured. And then it was a, I did my LCL, so it was probably four or five week injury. Um, and it was probably just before the World Cup selection. I'll be back maybe for two or three weeks before the World Cup team got selected. So I was really worried about that. I think, no, I don't have enough time to prove myself. I don't have enough time to show, um, you know, the coaches and, and the other players that I was good enough. And I remember I had a conversation with a few guys and they said, look, there's nothing you can do about the injury. All you can do is put your best foot forward. And when you get to get back on the park, make sure you're, you're firing, you're ready to go and you just give it your all. And I said, all right, no worries. And I got selected in the World Cup team and, and we won. It was, um, and it was an amazing, it was amazing year. And that probably gave me the confidence that I needed just to, to keep pushing on and, and to keep kind of developing my game. And I remember... I played pretty good through the World Cup and in the semi-final right near the end, I think we were winning like 6-1 or 6-2. So it was an absolute whitewash. Um, but I got turned over in the middle of the field and, and Argentina nearly scored a goal. And I remember being so dirty on myself for nearly letting Argentina get back in the game when we were clearly going to win it. Um, but that was something I'll always remember. And it was one of those moments where I said, well, if you want to be a really good player in the really big moments, yeah, you really have to make sure that um, your game's flawless and in terms of your basic skills they had to be at, at a really high level and they were they were pretty good but they weren't quite at that exceptional level that I, I wanted to get them to yeah that's really interesting we'll stick on um, your progression then for the meantime so in 2014 obviously it was a stacked kookaburra outfit um, and you were pretty young so I think you spent a fair bit of time as an outside half with guys like Rob Hammond in the midfield and um, in the center half row is that right uh, I started my career at, yeah, outside half in 2013, but it was only a handful of games. And I think um, it was a method that the coaches really wanted to use just to ease me into international hockey. But it certainly wasn't the position where I felt even myself most comfortable. 
Um, so I was actually splitting time between center half and outside half with um, D.Y. at that stage, Liam DeYoung, who's um, a Kookaburra superstar. And I think basically by about halfway through the year, I basically decided that, oh, and the coaches decided that I wasn't going to play outside half. It didn't really suit my style of game and that my development had to be in, in midfield role. So I basically was playing, yeah, midfield role through from about halfway through 2013 and on. Now I'm going to briefly interrupt here to introduce a feature of the show. We'll call it our Hero of Hockey segment. We know that community sport flourishes on the back of hardworking volunteers who give up their time and effort simply for the love of it. And we want to give you, the listener, the opportunity to contact us and tell us who deserves to be our Hero of Hockey for the week. Tell us who they are, what club they're from, and what they've done for the sport, and we'll give them and your club a shout-out. So, get in touch via our socials, and your nominee could be chosen for the next episode. Our hero of hockey for this week is Danny Mayfield, from the Mighty North's Devils Hockey Club in Mackay. Danny's contributions to Mackay hockey have been monstrous over the years, and hugely appreciated by those who've enjoyed the benefit of Danny's efforts, including our very own kookaburra, Matthew Swan, whom credits Danny with helping him reach his potential. When Danny's not playing A-grade and second-grade hockey with his son Caleb, you can find him coaching just about any team he can fit into his schedule. Danny currently coaches the Mercy under-15 boys, Mackay under-15 boys, Mackay under-11 girls, Mackay under-13 girls, Mackay senior men's team, and the North's men's A3 and A2 teams. In his spare time, Danny takes a break from all the club commitments and enjoys working as a member of the Mackay School Hockey Committee. Wow, what a guy. Danny, thanks for your contributions to our great sport. You're an absolute weapon. Now we're going to head back to Moose, who's about to give us his take on high-performance consistency, as well as walk us through what it's like to co-captain the team alongside Eddie Ockenden. If you look at um, where you are now to, to, I guess, where you were in 2013, that initial disappointment, it hasn't really been a smooth journey. There's been a lot of ups and downs and a lot of periods of, of self-reflection, I guess, that have got you to being such a dominant midfielder today. Um, obviously, that was rewarded with the World Player of the Year nomination that I don't think anyone can say wasn't deserved this year. You were just so dominant in that midfield, which was awesome for us. But there have been a lot of, lot of ups and downs for your journey, and I guess you've improved so much to the level where now you are so dominant in the midfield. But, yeah, as I said, the journey hasn't necessarily been linear. No, it hasn't been linear, but... I think that's been the best thing about it. I think if you don't really have any downs or have periods of disappointment, you can't enjoy your success and enjoy times when you're going really well. And I think you look at all the really great athletes and all the best players in the world, they can perform even when they're not at their best. So that's something you really have to learn to do um, as you gain experience and as you become a better player, you'll you'll learn to ride those lows and, and make sure they don't dip you know, that's more of a plateau than a low. And I think, yeah, over my career, I've probably really started to understand my game to the, to the point where if I knew I didn't have the ability that day or that tournament to um, really be at my optimal, I knew I, what I could do and, and how I could kind of get around that so that I still was putting my best foot forward for the team. And I, do, I did all what needed to be done. And that's something that I think, everyone has to understand about their their own sport or their own game or how the team operates and they have to immerse themselves you know in that situation so that you know that 
if they're having a bad day, you can't let that get to you. You really have to, to make sure you're still contributing. And, and that's something that I love doing, just contributing and making sure that, you know, I'm putting my, you know, my two cents into to the team result. I guess maybe a lot of people would be interested in what that actually looks like for you on game day. If I'm not having my best day? Yeah, what do you what do you go back to? You're obviously referring to like a base game, something that you can go back to and rely on to to make sure that you're doing your job and still contributing and um, I guess ensuring consistency across your across your performances. Uh, but what does that look like for you? Or are there any prompts that you go back to to make sure that you can do that? Yeah, certainly for me, um, I base my game around pretty simple things like uh, my receiving and my passing. Um, that's with the ball and then without the ball, I just pride myself on my positioning and, and my tackling defensively uh, and my effort. So if I'm not having, you know, or my base game, it's how I set up basically every match of hockey I play. I'll really start the game quite simple, just in and out passes with the defence, uh, quite simple passes forward. And as, as my confidence grows through a game, I'll, I'll probably start to evolve that and expand that um, into some more difficult skills and more optimistic passes. But uh, that's basically how I start every match, um, uh, with a real solid base, and then I start to grow on that. And if things probably don't go as well as I would have liked, I'll revert back to those basic things again uh, throughout the game. And one way I like to stay really involved is through my communication, and it's probably one of my um, skills in terms of my position and, and my responsibility within the team is that I really have to communicate and, and organise everyone on the field. So that's somewhere that if I don't have the ball, I can still stay engaged and stay into the game. And I have to keep my sense about me. I can't just worry about what I've done wrong. I really have to worry about what's happening on the field and, and the flow of the game. So that's important in uh, keeping me kind of level-headed. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know um, from being away on tour with you, you spend a lot of time in the video room and you always have your little black notebook rolling around um it's no secret within the group that you're you're a bit of a press nerd like you like controlling the press obviously as a center half um you need to know what it's all about but yeah since when has that been an element of interest for you in your game and how do you see that contributing to to your success as a midfielder yeah i it's certainly at the start of my career i wasn't obsessed with um the press i always thought i read the game really well or i could you kind of see what was happening but it takes so many uh, games and years of experience to um, understand the flow and momentum of a game and, and understanding patterns and how teams play and, and what they do and when. And as I started to grow that experience and develop that, um, that's when I really started to become interested in the press. And probably at the start of 2018, it really took uh, probably a more demonstrative approach to to that part of my game and Nolsey, Mark Knowles, who is probably one of the best uh, organisers and communicators on the field that I've played with, he was now living in, and training from Brisbane and the rest of the squad was training in Perth. So we probably didn't have his leadership and guidance as much on the field as um, we were used to and a lot of the team was used to. So that was certainly um, a stage where I thought, all right, I've... I've got an opportunity here to step up and take a little bit of control about the press and how we run things and, you know, how we're going to organise our, you know, defensive structure and kind of evolve from there. I think it, it's certainly like anything at ebbed and flowed. I probably went over the top at some stage and 
and then didn't communicate enough at other stages. And I think now we kind of find a happy medium where I'm trying to be as clear and concise with uh, my communication as possible and make sure that um, things are smooth and everyone's on the same page because you don't want someone in the middle of the pitch who's, who's calling the press stressed or um, not under control because it's very important that you know, their, their communication flows onto the rest of the team. Yeah, that's really interesting. We certainly um, appreciate having such a loud and, and clear voice and someone who knows the, the game so well um, behind us, especially as strikers, it makes the world a difference. Your role is also um, not just, I guess, press organiser, but you're a co-captain as well. And something we talk about with the Kookaburras a fair bit is game management. So um, if you throw all these things in together, there's a fair bit on your plate. Do you want to just talk about how, your, how co-captaincy works? and go into that game management piece, which I know you're interested in. So I've been really lucky to co-captain with Ed since uh, Mark Knowles retired midway through 2018. And um, I'm sure Ed would say the same, but we're quite different in how we go about things and our certain styles. So to have someone that I'm really great mates with, Ed's one of my, probably one of my best mates in the team, but to have him by my side and, and using our different strengths and to complement each other, I think it's been really rewarding. Uh, at the moment, we've, we do it differently. Uh, we've done it differently before, but uh, quite recently we've been taking the captaincy one game at a time, um, which basically means uh, I'll run you know, most of the leadership or the, the captain's responsibilities for that day and, and then hand it over to Ed uh, the next game. And especially in its infancy, it was uh, really great just to let go of that captain's band every second game and just play and not worry about anything and, and, and just go back to what we know and what we love and that's just play hockey. Um, on the other hand, it's great to put the captain's band on and take that responsibility on and lead out the team. And you stand in the, at the front of the pack and when you do the national anthem and you think, holy shit, I'm, what are we allowed to swear? Holy shit, we're captaining Australia and we're leading the country. And that's something I certainly take pride in and, you probably see that if people have ever watched uh, me or the Kookaburras play hockey, that's certainly something that, that I take pride in and I love doing. But it's also not your, your first leadership role with the Kookaburras. I mean, um, since 2014, I guess you've been a part of uh, a leadership group in some way or another. Um, how has your leadership style changed over the last, I guess that's six years ago now? Yeah, it's been quite a while. It's changed heaps. I think at the start, well, maybe why I was identified as someone that had leadership qualities was a little bit about my personality when I'm focused. I've probably got a split personality in terms of <laughs> how, how I act. So I've got the focused, um, very determined, very single-minded Aaron, and that's, that's hockey Aaron. And then on the other side, I've got the very easygoing, kind of relaxed, a little bit Liazo Fair kind of, um, and that's my Margaret River Surfy Aaron. That's Moose. And I think that's Moose, yeah. <laughs> so I think at the, the, probably the, at the start of my career, I was very much living that focused, determined uh, hockey Aaron. And I think I would, had a strong opinion about how I thought the game should be and how we should play. And and I was pretty happy to, to share that. And that's probably, you know, why I was sitting, you know, in a leadership role. I'm not, sh- I'm not exactly sure if that's why, but I felt, I felt like, you know, I was happy to share my opinion about how things should be. And, and I was 
you know, strong about that at a young age, even to guys that were, you know, well above my experience level and well above my age. And the transition over the last years, I think it's been a, a melting pot of probably the two different uh, personalities that I have kind of fusing them together. And what I love about the Cookwares group and what we've been able to develop is um, a culture that everyone's a part of. It's not Ed and I sitting at the top and everyone looking down. I feel like um, we're much more collective about how we go about things and um, we can have input, we can have uh, feedback and constructive criticism from from everyone and, and that's an environment that, that I really enjoy and it's an environment I think we all can learn and grow from and uh, there's so many great leaders and Cookaburras players that we have at the moment that it would be remiss of us not to uh, get the opinion from everyone. And I think um, certainly that's the environment that we've got at the moment. And whether that will change, I probably think it will over the, the next few years, but I love to see that uh, happen organically. Yeah, I mean, that's an, that's an interesting point. And also, I guess you were put in a position of luxury um, in that, you could somewhat be Mark Knowles' understudy and watch the way that one of the best leaders um, Australian hockey has had go about his business. And I remember I was talking to him about his leadership style away on tour at some stage and he said something similar in that um, he has a very clear idea of how he wants things to do, but that's simply not team sport. The beauty of team sport is that there are so many different personalities and the diversity is, I guess, the strength. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, I think, and like you said, Tom, I think that's probably been my biggest growth over the last year and a half is actually shutting my mouth and letting other people step up and take responsibility and, and say things how they should they think they should be. And certainly at the start, I was like, no, nah, I'm very strong in my opinion and I want things to happen this way. Um, but being much more open and, and trying to create that environment where everyone does feel comfortable and trying to make that, you know, as common as possible because I think that's when you get the most growth and yeah, that's been, that's probably been the learning that, um, that I've had over the last, yeah, over the last yeah two years. Uh, with your heightened role as a leader within the group, um, there's been a progression to where you are now as a co-captain. Do you feel like that's been reflected in your individual game as well? Has it helped? Yeah, I certainly think um, that it's, added something to my game. I think the one of the major things is making sure I'm holding myself to really high standards and playing really well. Um, and I can't expect others to do, um, you know, things that I'm not doing or if I'm not playing really well, I can't expect others to be doing those sort of things. So that's something that's made me really aware of and really um, made sure that I've been consistent in my performance over um, a long time. And that's what we talked a little bit about earlier about making sure when you're not playing well, you're still contributing and you're not having those um, really low points and you're making sure that you're really stable in your performance. And I think really good players do that all the time and they play really well consistently and, and you know, you can see that across the board. That's interesting. And also, uh, people might not know, but you did go to school with um, a fellow Aussie sporting <laughs> superstar, Nat Fife. For those of you who don't know, is a two-times Brownlow medalist. As an Aussie rules player, that's the highest gong we have in this country um, and you went to school with him and beat him in a marking contest. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's been turned into a little bit of a myth now. People always say, did you do that? Uh, and I have to remind them that yes, I actually did. Uh, but yeah, Nat's, that's a good friend 
and he's a good resource as well. I think having people doing similar things to you and, and using them as a resource is, is very valuable. So we catch up for coffee quite often and have a chat. And as far apart as, as our worlds are, they're actually uh, very close as well. So um, we just went for a surf a couple of weeks ago and uh, there was a lot of news around uh, him breaking a regional border barrier and there was no comment about me. So I was pretty happy that you know he took all the heat for that situation. Yeah, that's classic. That's a good indicator of where of the publicity, I guess, hockey gets in in Australia. But uh, you're both captains too. He's the he's been the captain since 2017 of of the Fremantle Dockers. Um, do you guys ever talk about leadership? Yeah, yeah, we've talked a little bit about leadership before. Um, pretty different. We're pretty different individuals, and I think that's probably needed because we operate in different environments. He's um, in an environment where he has. They have 40, 45 people at training, um, which is just absolutely crazy. Uh, but they have to deal with a lot of different things that we probably don't have to deal with. They've got, uh, you know, big money contracts. They've got um, a very professional environment. They've got all the resources they need, whereas we see ourselves as a little bit more blue collar, a little bit more hardworking. Uh, and th- that's just how we've had to apply our leadership skills in, in different environments and you know, I love hearing him talk about leadership and, and his philosophy on it as much as I like to kind of take as much away from other people, books and uh, podcasts and people in, you know, lots of different uh, different spaces of life and spaces of work. Well, you've been giving us some pretty good nuggets of wisdom. So if you're into podcasts, you can always listen to yourself back here if you need any motivation. Um, but we're going to move on. Obviously, it's good to have a resource like like Nat um, around you and I can I can hear that you get a lot of value out of it. We're going to talk um, Olympics now. You're involved with, obviously, we've spoken about the 2014 World Cup, um, but it was quite a different result in, in Rio. And obviously, the result there hurt everyone a fair bit, but that's quite the, it's quite the swing between being so dominant at one major tournament to, I guess, you know, bowing out in the, in the quarterfinal of another. What happened and, and what learnings have you got personally moving forward to Tokyo? Yeah, so we had obviously, yeah, won the World Cup. We won the World Cup in 2014, a really successful tournament. And then leading up to the Olympics, we'd, we'd had a fair bit of success. We, we won the Commonwealth Games in 2014. Uh, in 2015, we won the Hockey World League, which was a, um, a world tournament. And then in 2016, we won the Champions Trophy just, just before the Olympics. So we had a fair bit of success leading into the Olympics, um, but it didn't kind of translate maybe into how we were playing or how we were going as a team. And that probably overshadowed some of the, some of the vulnerabilities that we had. And, I remember going into the tournament thinking, or just wondering how good we were, and uh, you know if you know how we were going to go against all the other teams because we probably didn't play an international game for six weeks leading into the Olympics, and that's pretty similar for most major tournaments because you're training, you're doing your final preparations, and you're getting ready to travel and and leave home for a month. So you're really unsure when you're heading how you're going to go and. Um, I guess that's what drives your preparation and drives your performance. Uh, during Rio, yeah, things didn't seem to go um, as well as we would have liked. We still put ourselves in a position to, to well, we made the quarterfinal against Holland, uh, who we'd beaten the World Cup two years before convincingly. 
um, but they kind of returned serve to us in that match and yeah, we really didn't have a shot at all or we didn't really take a shot uh, at them at all and it was a one-way match and that ended our Rio campaign. And then I kind of looked back on that and how that affected the team and or how that changed the team moving forward and I know we did have a lot of guys exodus after the Rio campaign and whether that was through their own decision or through the decision of uh, the coaches and the new selection squad as, as we moved into the next Olympic cycle. But I certainly think t- during that time, we probably didn't have, you know, strong enough or really strong enough and clear enough uh, leadership from the top. And and I think we probably became too self-driven and, and we were doing, you know, pretty much doing and, and playing exactly what, we wanted as a team, but we didn't really have as much direction as we would have wanted. So uh, if that makes any sense, we, we probably yeah, didn't put all our eggs into the right baskets. Moose, so originally you actually weren't a part of the 16 to tour Rio, um, but due to injuries, you got on the plane and you ended up having a strong tournament over there. How difficult was it to deal with that initial disappointment and then turn it into uh, performances on the pitch? Yes, yeah, so it was... Such a difficult time. I remember the kind of that that four years leading in. I'd really committed to the Cookaburras, and I'd basically been a part of every team, every tournament in the lead up. And to miss out on selection was gut wrenching. And I remember just just feeling, yeah, I was just really flat about everything, and um, it was a really difficult time. And it was quite uncomfortable as well because I remember um, Nolsey, Mark Nolsey was he was kind of nursing a broken foot, so the coaches actually asked me to to play and do all the scratch matches with the Olympic team. But I wasn't a part of the team. So I really felt like I was in a, a, a limbo situation. So I was kind of on the in, but mostly on the outer. And then, yeah, I, I just... Going to training was probably the easiest thing at that time. You just I'm not really a person that likes to kind of feel sorry for myself or whinge and complain about what had happened. So I love just going to training and, and just kind of... just letting it all, you know, letting it all free and just playing and, and competing against all the guys. And I could just forget about uh, the selection for a little bit when I was at training. And then, yeah, I got put into the team, which was um, obviously Tristan White got injured. He hurt his knee in a practice game uh, not that long out before the Olympics. And um, I was lucky enough to get put in. And it, well, that was a difficult situation as well because you see one of your mates not make it and you get put in. So you're it's such a difficult situation to kind of manage but at the all I was really happy um, I'd get to live my dream I was going to the Olympics so I kind of just had to put everything behind me and just focus on the job at hand and yeah I feel like I played really well at that Olympics and I was kind of in that in the mental headspace of I didn't really care about what anyone thought of my game or um, I was kind of saying <laughs> fuck you to the coaches and fuck you to everyone I'm just gonna play and not worry about anything else and I uh, actually played really well so it was quite an interesting time and and like we discussed before I went over to Holland after that season and that allowed me to you know totally decompress and get rid of any of that you know those uncomfortable feelings that I had you know before Rio and, and through that campaign uh, but certainly you know it was it was an interesting time in my career and another pretty important moment that I feel that 
that made me a, a much better player in the, in the end. Yeah, that's uh, it. Must have been it. Must have been tough. I mean, um, it is a strange environment where you're training with your best best mates in that space in between Olympic selection and the team actually going. There's you know a group who have just had their dreams shattered for at least four years, and another team who have just you know realised their their dreams. So it is a very very interesting environment, and I guess you're on both sides of it in that three weeks um, and handled it well. There's a lot to talk about, mate. To be honest, there's there's so much you've done. You've done heaps. I want to talk about HIL, um, hockey India league, and I know you're a big fan of India and never get sick when you go over there. Um, <laughs> but you've had a few. You've had a few goes at, at HIL, a few kind of six week blocks going over there, and I'm really interested to to talk to you about your experience and I guess also the the opportunity to play with um, different players. Yeah, I love playing in India. I think if you get the opportunity to go and play anywhere in the world and just experience different cultures and um, different attitudes and skills, and I think that was it was an awesome thing to go over to India and spend a lot of time there. Uh, I certainly did did get sick. I was probably uh, a little bit brazen about the hygiene over there and thought that I was tough enough to get through things, and I basically fell over every year at some stage for about three or four days and um, missed, you know, missed games here and there, missed games at the World Cup, missed games through Hockey India League and ended up in some pretty dodgy hospitals. So that was, they were also pretty memorable experiences. Playing in India, we got to play with a lot of different players from heaps of different countries, obviously a lot of very skillful Indians, um, those who we know and those that we had no idea who they were. And I think, yeah, I learned heaps from, from those guys and just watched how they play hockey. In Australia, we play such a unique way and, and having just the contrast of skills and knowledge and uh, attitude was um, pretty rewarding. And there's a couple of guys that, that were really world-class that I was lucky enough to play with. And most of my team, we had Australians on, so it was a pretty comfortable environment. But um, we had... Mo Furster, who is obviously a he's a dual gold medalist, I think, and dual World Cup winner. So he was a very interesting guy to play with, very knowledgeable and, and very skillful guy. And you know his ability to to lead a team was um, pretty phenomenal, especially in such an unusual environment that it is India, which is such a hierarchical system. So he was able to do that really well, I feel, and and I learned a lot from him through that experience and. And then we had other guys like Billy Backer, who is he's technically exceptional. You look at him play and his skills are, you know, flawless. So that's someone that you go, wow, that was that was incredible. And then we played with some Spanish guys who were really good, Rock Oliver. And, and uh, yeah, he had one of the best V-drags that I've seen. He just was able to pull it back on the dime and, and pretty much win a free hit whenever he wanted. So there was a lot of those different skills and, and philosophies that we learned through through that time in India. And off the pitch, it was a it was an opportunity for you to combine some of your great loves. I mean, yoga, coffee, and uh, traveling. How was it off off pitch? Yeah, I don't know if um, Glenn Turner was a bigger influence on me, or I was a bigger influence on him because <laughs> we basically wake up every morning and and spend a, about an hour doing yoga before we have breakfast. And it was just the thing about creating a routine because you're literally living in a hotel room, so that's really important and probably what like what a lot of people are going through now you're spending a lot of time in your hotel room or at home so to, to preoccupy your mind with 
things that you're passionate about or you're interested in. And, and I think that's, that was something that um, we, we did in India and it was very rewarding for us mentally as much as it was physically doing yoga and setting up your coffee. And, you know, there's a couple of hours every day gone that you don't, don't have to think about what you're going to do. And you'd go back? I'd go back in the heartbeat, yep. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a few quick questions. Three questions that I ask every guest at the end of the show. First one being, who is the best player you've ever played against? Uh, the most difficult player I ever played against, probably, um, and it's probably more positional as well. So I've obviously played against lots of different players, but um, someone I love challenging myself against was Tobias Halp from Germany. He's he was just such a strong physical player on the field, and that's kind of how I like to play my hockey. So going in this battle against him was something I really enjoyed. And he's such a hard guy to tackle. So um, whenever I did, I was like, yes, I won that battle. Um, so he was someone, someone I love playing against. Also, more recently, and like I said before, he's played with Billy in India. I love playing against him now because we play the same position. And he's very, he's technically excellent. And I wouldn't say that I'm a very technical player. So um, I love going into battle against him as well. Yes, there are a couple of guys I enjoy playing against. Yeah, Tobias Hauker, also a, a dual gold medalist at the Olympics. What is it about his game in particular that um, you enjoy coming up against so much? Yeah, I think just this, the strength in his receive is probably... I don't know if anyone else receives the ball better than he does, but um, he's so hard to tackle and I just admired that about him and it was something that I'd worked a lot in my game and, and I worked a lot um, at trying to emulate some of the skills that these guys have and, and the skill that he has in receiving and holding the ball really strong and being able to pass from that position. Um, and that was the challenge to try and get the ball off him, I think, when we played. So that was that was what I admired about him and that was why I enjoyed the challenge of going up um, head-to-head against him. Very cool. Uh, next question. Which player do you find that your experience playing with them has brought the most value? Uh, I think there's a few different players that I immediately think of and they're probably not as obvious as others but I remember when I was a kid a couple of guys used to play hockey down in Margaret were very influential on me and those are um, Matt Wilcox and David Reid and they're two um, pretty fun guys but they were always about they're about eight or ten years older than me so they were the guys I looked up to and tried to emulate their skills and then once I got into the national program, the guys that I really looked up to was certainly um, Mark Knowles and he was a big inspiration uh, and motivation for me and not necessarily his skills, but just the way he went about his hockey and his attitude and purpose that he brought to the field, training games, and then how he carried himself uh, through a match was something that I kind of learned a lot from. And we're very different people and, and different leaders, but um, I def- definitely learned a lot from, from his skills. Very cool. And last question. Uh, do you have one, you've obviously got a lot of nuggets of wisdom, primarily in pun form, but if you had to share one slice of knowledge or advice with anyone listening, uh, be they a kid from the country or, or wherever, what would, you, what would you say? I'd say don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> I think life, life's too short to waste and use, use time and energy on um, things that are unnecessary. So uh, put your time and energy to the things that you care about and the things that you love and 
uh, don't worry about everything else. I guess um, from being around you a fair bit, I have to say that you definitely live that philosophy to its fullest. Anyway, mate, that's, that's all we're going to do um, today. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been really, really good to have you. Um, enjoy your time down in Margs and uh, stay safe while you're surfing, eh? <laughs> we'll do. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, good, mate. <laughs> Big thank you to the production team of David Moore, Tim Collier and Jimmy Stevens. If you do like the help side, please like, subscribe, interact. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at The Help Side on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's it for now. We'll catch you on The Help Side next time.